Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. God's call to the people is one of an invitation to repentance. And he waits. He waits. And Joel continues to write, giving instruction to the people on how they're to respond and what that will look like as God begins to pour out this wave of his revival, what I call revival, what the Bible just calls his unfailing love. And if you read chapter 2 of Joel this afternoon, you'll see all of the goodness that God has lined up for you. And then in verse 28, God says this, Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, says the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth. That is what we're singing about this morning. That is what our prayer is as the team leads us in these songs and these anthems. They're not just something to make us clap and feel good. They're a prophetic utterance that comes out of your mouth as a prayer because you believe what God says to be true here. And I am prophesying this morning in the same vein as what Joel has declared over the people of God that there is a coming, a flood. A wave of an outpouring of heaven that will shift us from here to there and help us to step into all the good things. God has already declared ours as his people. So I'm going to pray, and you can choose if you agree with me. But Almighty God, we do honor your holy scriptures, and we come together this morning to, to search for the God of the scriptures. We don't want to focus on the promise. We want to focus on you who makes the promise. We honor you, God, as the author of our journey and the one who declares those things as though they are, even though we're not yet experiencing them. But God, give us the hope and the faith and the courage to step into the victory that you've already made available. God, we want to receive what you have for us. We want to be mature enough to contain it. We want to be bold enough to declare it. God, May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. May we see and experience and taste how good you are as you pour your spirit out upon us again and again and again. Lord, we see the cloud the size of a man's fist. And we gird up, we gather our robes and ready to run because we know when it comes... It's coming like a flood, a torrent of your goodness flowing out of heaven, affecting not just us, but those around us. Lord, we receive your promise this morning by faith. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Awesome. Well, that wasn't how I planned to start, but that's what God had in mind, so we'll just do that. Uh, I want to talk this morning about family. Um, welcome. To all of you, uh, welcome especially to those who are visitors. Um, every week I just see different faces, new faces, some that I haven't met yet. So my name's Phil, I'm part of the team here, and uh, it's our delight to do what we can this morning to host God's presence in order that you would meet him here. Our goal is not just for numbers or a good time or a feel-good factor, but that each person has an encounter, an encounter with God. 
And uh, we've set that up as an opportunity for you today. Um, so I've been speaking about family, and um, when, I, when I first started searching God's heart, uh, at the beginning of my time here, mid-2015, God said, uh, there's a phrase he gave me, God said, gather and build the family. And so everything we did was essentially in line with what we felt him say in that regard. Uh, not more than a year after that, God said to me in, uh, in another time of, of mountaintop preparation and prayer, he said, revival will come through family. The revival I promised you will flow through family. It's not separate to family, but it's through family. And so we make no apologies for continuing to speak about family. And every time I try and get on a different trail, God just gently yanks me by the neck with a shepherd's crook and brings me back into alignment. And I don't apologize for that because I'm grateful that he leads me. As you can see on the screen, family is one of our values. This is our value statement. If you're new around here, you may not have seen this before. But if you've been here for a while, this should be familiar to you. It should not be a surprise to you. It would be something that you should have on your fridge if your wife allows you to put things on the fridge in your kitchen. (laughs) But instead, write it on your heart. That was a very bad save, but... um, so it's no surprise that I keep talking about family because it's ingrained in who we are. Um, family is, is God's gift to us, and it's his way of demonstrating himself and his love to us. God presents himself to us in different ways as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, demonstrating perfect love between themselves and drawing us into a place where we would also experience that love from a Father, from Jesus the Son, and through our interaction with Holy Spirit. It's who he is. And it's who he's designed us to be. I, I started um, preparing, God started preparing me for this message a couple of weeks ago. And then just last Saturday, we were flying back from Nelson. And I started reading this book that I downloaded um, called Church's Family. And I started highlighting it on the, as you do on the screen. And all these cool things came out. And as a team on Tuesdays, we're now working through what this book is Uh, revealing to us, but here's a quote from the introduction. Michael Brodeur, the author, says, when God created the first family, he had a prime purpose in mind. He told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, family is God's methodology for ruling the earth and filling it with his glory. That's the destination that I just talked about, but this phrase caught me right here. It is also family, is also his methodology both in redemption and restoration. And that's where I want to go today. Family is designed by God for us to learn about God and in that be drawn into an experience of family designed by Him that we would find redemption and restoration. And so today I want to segue from family and talk about how that happens. And to do that I want to talk about love. Because we learn to love in the context of family. It's the way God designed it. It's the way he demonstrates it, and it's what he invites us into. So learning what family means and learning to love like family, as Jesus teaches us, I think is, is the mandate or the manual or the process for us. Um, now, you've got to decide what that means for you today. All of you come from different space and a different walk. For some, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I recognize that family has shaped you the way you are and got you to this place. And for some, that's been a good experience, but not so for everyone. But it's the context of our family that shapes us, and I don't want that to confine or restrict what God's leading us into or what he's leading you into. When it comes to church family, and I use this phrase all the time, and sometimes I end up in a wrestling match about what that means, because some of you have not experienced good church family. And so your journey creates your expectations, which shapes the filters. And today what I'm inviting Jesus to do is to come and to give us his perspective on family and how love looks in a family that we would learn from him and his Holy Spirit how to do family and love. So I've invited two young friends to come and help me. Why don't you girls come up now? We're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 15. And I thought uh, I would get some helpers. So um, the stairs, find the stairs wherever you like. Jamie's got a microphone. So if you want to turn there now, we'll swipe your screens to Luke chapter 15. Uh, we're going to read the story of the lost son. And before you start, remember, tell us your name and tell us how old you are. My name is Sarah Hopkins, and I am 10. Great. I'm Jessica, and I'm Sarah's sister, and my name is, and I am 9. 9. Great. Awesome. So they're going to read. You can follow along in your Bible. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He had, and he began to be in need. So after. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer of worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Put the fattened calf and bring it. 
and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the house. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed you or your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that we can gather around your word and it comes alive and teaches us new things. So as we dedicate this time this morning, we want to hear from you. Draw us as a family to respond to what you have for us this morning and we thank you that each one of us can serve you in our ways that you've designed for us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, girls. Give them a big round of applause. So Luke chapter 15, a series of three, product, uh, three parables finishing with this one. Jesus is, he's responding, in, in chapter 15, he's responding to the scorn of the Pharisees, the leaders of the church, uh, because he's been hanging out with sinful people, or people that are not perfect. And so rather than react and, and attack, he just tells three stories. And he tells the the story of the lost sheep, he tells the story of the lost coin, and then he tells the story of the lost son. Each story, some say, represents how Jesus responds to us when we're lost, how the Holy Spirit responds to us when we're lost, and finally how the Father responds. Some call this the story of the prodigal son. This morning I'm calling it the story of a loving father. So my, my aim today is for you to see, as I just share some thoughts, how Jesus would teach us to respond to Father's love. We're going to look at what I've phrased, the pain of love, and it's on the screen there. It's the title of my message today. I don't know if you saw, but um, I put a video up just with this image. But also, the second half of the phrase was on the video. It says, the pain of love brings the fruit of love. And so what I want us to see today is what is the fruit that Jesus is pointing us to that we might have to walk through? Because the honest truth is, I think in most situations in life, you can't get the fruit until you've had the pain. It's a kingdom principle that in order for us to experience life, we must first experience death. For us to be fruitful, we must be pruned. So the pain of love brings the fruit of love, and that's what I want us to look at as we look at this passage 
Um, some of you will know it well. Some of you just keep referring to it. I'm going to read certain verses out of it. What I want to do as I journey through this is just look at the three key characters in the story. And so firstly, what I want to do is actually look at the father. And you'll see at the beginning, um, Jesus sets this up. He says, the younger, a man had two sons. The youngest son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before I die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now culturally, basically, what this young man is saying to his father is, you're as good as dead to me. He's rejecting him. Because typically, the only way you get your inheritance is for your father to die. And so the son is saying, you're dead. The father doesn't argue. The father responds, and I want us to look at that. But I also want you to see what the father does in this, and how does he respond? The father agrees and divides his estate, which is predominantly land and stock, and he divides it according to the the, the tradition of the Jewish custom that God had declared through you know, uh, Moses in the Torah, the law, and he says the older son will get a double portion. So if there's two boys, then essentially the older son gets two-thirds of the estate and the younger gets one-third, the older having double of everyone else in the family. A couple of days later, the young son says, right, I'm out of here, sells everything, and he goes. He's gone. How does the father respond? The father divides his wealth. Literally meaning, in the original language, he emptied his life. What's the pain point there? Pain that brings love. The pain is that love gives all. I've got three pain points, I think. I can't remember, but I think the first one is pain comes because love gives all. Now, as a father, I can tell you, you those of you that are parents will know that when you give all, there's a vulnerability that comes with that. But there's there's actually no thought in your mind of holding anything back. But read into the story. Think about it from a perspective of the character, in this case, the father. What does that pain feel like? What is it like to empty your life for someone else with no response? And I think what Jesus is showing us is that the father... The father doesn't get out his stick and give the boy a hiding. He doesn't put him in time out. He doesn't uh, lock his FPOS card so he can't use it or take away his Xbox. The father actually allows free will. The father allows free will... And with that comes a vulnerability that leads to potential pain because of the risk. But the truth is love can't avoid pain. Love can't avoid being vulnerable. Love can't avoid giving another person free will in order to let them choose how they respond to love. And that's the way Father God is with us. Because what is it that Father God desires the most in all of this? Father God desires relationship. And relationship can only come as we give people free choice. The question you have to ask yourself is, why does God allow this? What is, what is the fruit that comes out of the pain of love? What, what, why, why the pain? And, and as I'm searching this, here's what I heard God say to me. What Father God really, really wants 
is sons and daughters who learn how to make choices for themselves. You see, if you're disconnected from the Father, then you are quite possibly going to make an error. However, if you're immature, you're going to make a decision that is out of line with the heart of the Father. You see, the Father doesn't want to control you. He wants you to learn to get to know who He is and what His heart is. And in knowing what His heart is, you in free will and free choice make a decision in line with His heart. That's what God the Father does. How many of you are here because He beat you up and forced you to come into faith with Him? None of you. God gave you free choice. You responded to His love and you are here by free choice. And in that, you learn to know him as a father, learn how his heart operates, and then discipleship is all about learning how to make decisions of free will in line with what he's already said his heart is. Michael Berdur in his book says another statement. He says this. He says, true family is not about raising children. It's about raising mature adults. As God was bringing this revelation to me, Kathy and I were having meetings with different people and encounters, and in the midst of that, uh, God showed me that um, he really is quite keen for people to stop asking him to open doors and close doors. Because when you do that, you are trying to absolve yourself from responsibility and let him take the blame if it doesn't go right. But what he wants you to do is learn what his heart is like and walk like an adult and make decisions in line with what his heart is. Because if he's got to keep opening and shutting doors, you're going to stay in diapers for the rest of your life. It's the Father's heart. It's the fruit that comes from love, and it requires pain for us to get there, but the Father is okay with that. We don't live a pain-free life. That's a romantic story that is not reality. We've got to learn to operate in choice, free choice, free will that the Father's given as a gift, but we've got to learn to do that in line with his heart. Jesus teaches that. John 15. Abide in me, that you would know me, and your life would be a fruit, as mine does. Paul the Apostle writes it in teaching the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I am your spiritual father, therefore imitate me. Know my heart, God says, and live accordingly. Love must allow free choice. It's the way of God. And as disciples, we've got to learn what his heart is and learn to live and love so that we become mature sons and daughters, representing his heart as we make those life choices. Let's look at the younger son. Verse 13, a few days later, after he gets his moolah, the son, younger son, packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. He makes his choice. Culturally speaking, the the people who are listening to Jesus tell the story, including the Pharisees, the leaders of the church, and the audience, including the the sinners that he was accused of hanging out with, they're listening to that going, oh, that's bad. Because what he's done publicly is he's rejected the ways of his father. He scorned his upbringing. This is a boy who's learned the Torah. He's raised in the Jewish culture. He's been to, to daily prayer. He's been to synagogue. And he's gone stuff you. I'm out of here. 
And in doing so, he brings shame upon his family. Pain comes. Pain comes as a result of choice. Interesting observation in these three parables. One of the, um, I suppose, commentaries that I read this week in regards to this passage is, he makes an observation. Uh, He says, the first parable is about the lost sheep. The sheep wanders away, but the sheep has no moral compass. So the shepherd goes looking for it. And the lost coin, the thing about a coin is it's an object that can't make choices. So the Holy Spirit brings revelation in order that we find it. But the difference with the son, the son has free will, the son does get to make choices, and the son does have a moral compass. Big difference in the burden of responsibility that we carry as children of God. So what's the pain point here? The son runs away, he says, stuff you, I'm out, and goes and squanders his wealth, his inheritance on wild living. What I want you to see in the story is the father waits. One of the harsh realities that I got out of studying this passage of Scripture is that love doesn't rescue. Because when you continue to be rescued, you continue to stay immature. I have friends in their 40s who still run home when they're sick so mummy can look after them. I have friends who are parents who are babysitting their 18-year-old wondering why they're still immature. We will do everything we can as a church to love you. But most of the time I will not step in and rescue you from your own mistakes. Because love requires pain and pain brings fruit. What does the father want? He wants the fruit. He desires the fruit. So the pain of love brings the fruit of love. When we come to the father, when we finally respond because he's waiting for us, we get to receive that love and we get to receive that he always designed for us. How do we respond to that love? Because when we come back, as we're going to see shortly, we get to experience something that is provided by nothing else, no one else, no other thing in all of creation or person could ever do this. The key point here is Jesus wants us to love this way, the way the Father does. What's he pointing to? The fruit of this pain is that we would learn through our experience and our pain that we are also required to love like this. We have, a, um, we have an ethos here in leadership, and I have mentioned this once or twice before, but you know, our, our ethos in working out how to lead here is that we love with inclusion, and that includes discipline. We don't, we don't have an exclusive kind of chop you off, send you away. If you're in trouble, and you, you respond, as we see the young son do, then we, we, we bring you in. We love you hard, hard. We love you fiercely. We love you closely. We keep you in the circle of embrace because that's the safest place for you. How do you do that? John writes about it in First John. If you're taking notes, write these verses down. First John 3, verse 11. This is the message of love you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Verse 16. 
We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Sacrificial love is a cute phrase. Not so easy to live. Verse 18. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. John writes. Verse 19. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we'll be confident when we stand before God. And finally, 1 John 4, verse 19, we love each other because he loved us first. It's what love looks like, the fruit of love. The fruit of love is what the father demonstrates to the young son while he waits. And in waiting, every day, he's demonstrating that undying love. What's the fruit of that love? Well, we see that in verse 21 of Luke 15. We continue the story. The son returns to his father. He comes to his senses. What that means is he, he actually responded to the moral compass that's in him that comes from Holy Spirit. The father's waiting on the rooftop. Those days, there was a porch on the roof of the house, and you could see further from up there, and I can guarantee you that every day the father was waiting, looking. And while the son was a long way off, the father saw him coming, ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him on the neck. Verse 21 is the fruit of that love. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. What's the fruit that comes from the pain of love? Love leads to repentance. What, that's what the father wants. That's why he doesn't beat you up. He loves on you extravagantly, continuously, in order that you would find the fruitful place of repentance. Love leads us to repentance. We must love people to bring them to a place of connection with God. It's my responsibility and yours. But there's more than that. What flows out of repentance we see in verse 22? The father responds to the son's repentance in verse 22 and says to his servants, the girls read this for us, quick, bring him the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, each one of those symbolic. The finest robe in the house signifying a place of honor, a ring of the family signifying authority, shoes representing sonship because slaves don't wear shoes. That's why he was barefoot. What comes out of repentance? Restoration. God loves us fiercely until we come to a place of repentance. You will know this. You've journeyed it in the walk of salvation. God loved you fiercely and waited. And when you found your moment of repentance, what did he do? He restored you with a spirit of sonship. Beautiful. And that, in that place, that's where that prophetic word from Joel chapter 2 came to me. I'm preparing this week and, and I'm immersing myself in this. And God just says, when the church comes to a place of repentance in response to my love, I will bring restoration. It's all in Joel 2. Read the whole chapter. And in that place of restoration, I will then pour out my spirit and you will see my glory magnified upon my people. Come on, that's good news, people. 
I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm waiting on that day. I'm fasting and I'm praying that I might see it with my own eyes, what I believe God has promised us as a community of faith. Repentance leads to restoration. Finally, in this text, let's look at the older brother, who, in my opinion, is the worst character in the story. Verse 28, there's a party going on in the house, music and dancing, and he looks in the window, and well, he's probably on Instagram seeing photos of his son, of his younger brother, wearing his robe that he was supposed to wear to his wedding. His younger brother's wearing it in a party. Older brother was angry, verse 28, wouldn't go in. His father comes out, begging him. See, what happens here, and you might have heard this before, but the, the older brother responds out of a place of disconnection. Let's get, let's get the facts straight. He owns everything. He lives on the property all the servants are his, and yet somehow he's disconnected. What's wrong with this? The condition of his heart. What does the father do? Has he beat him with a stick? Take away his PlayStation? No. See, Jesus wants us to see how we respond, how you, how me, how I respond to grace and love when it's sent to someone else. Three mistakes the older brother does that I see cause pain. Most prevalent in the church. Verse 28. Now, nah, I'm making the father come out. You see, this is ignorance that cries favoritism. I get accused of favoritism from time to time because of the way I act in grace and love towards an individual. But what I call that is ignorance. Because what it is, is not understanding that everyone is accepted, but it doesn't always look the same. And so the older brother scorns his father with this ignorance by choosing to part with bitterness and unforgiveness. He rejects his father's love out of ignorance. And who misses out? Well, the father's in pain and the son has unmet needs. See, isn't it better, instead of being passive-aggressive, isn't it better to express your needs in order that they would be met? It's all God the Father wants you to do. Pour out your heart to him, express what your needs are and allow him to lavish you in love. He never rejects you, but always draws you in. But it's painful. What's the second mistake the brother makes? In verse 29, he says, All these years I've slaved for you. Considering he owns the estate. I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing. And you never gave me a young goat for a feast with my friends. You see, what he's doing here is he's, he's, got, this, um, he's got this heart that's hardened. For whatever reason, we don't know why. But he's got this arrogance where he chooses to project his issues onto his dad and his brother. Instead of dealing with himself. 
So what happens is when you come to me complaining about someone else is you're just vomiting all over me what someone else should have. So what do I do? Put it in a bucket and go and give it to them? No. Because the Father responds in love and grace and everyone gets love and grace. No conditions attached. But the arrogance of projection, you're, you're elevating yourself higher than anyone else. And in doing so, heaping dishonor over everybody in the room. Third mistake is in verse 30. One of your son comes back after squandering money on prostitutes you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. Where did he make this up? What gives him the right to make up accusations in order to bring someone else down? Jesus does not mention anything of this kind in the story. And so he's placing judgment on someone from his view. And in doing so, he's making this dreadful assumption that love is limited, so I've got to steal it from someone else. I think what Jesus wants us to see is the Father loves extravagantly. And we've got to learn to live in that place at all times, whether we're in the spotlight or not. It doesn't change how much you're loved. I read this quote this week that was going to go down like a cup of cold sick, but I'll read it anyway. Many people have romanticized the idea of the family church into a Disneyland ideal, a place where everyone's accepted, loved, and cared for without any expectation of reciprocation. There is no price for you to receive love, but there's an expectation that you'll give it. This is not Disneyland. The kingdom of God is not Disneyland. And we're all called to live in a place of love. So I want to to bring this to a conclusion by trying to work out, well, what is the Father doing in the story? And and Jesus is a master storyteller. He, He helps us a lot, but I want you to see that he doesn't actually finish the story the way that we might expect him to. He leaves it hanging for the audience. We don't know how the older brother reacts. We don't know what the Father says. If I was imagining the end of the story... I would just imagine this father who loves without limit hugging his son until it's awkward and then beyond the place of awkwardness to the place of love. I had a hug like that once. Well, the first time, I've had lots of hugs like that, but the first time I was up in California and I was staying with a family and my Kiwi friend met me and we had coffee and he said, look, I'm going to uh, introduce you to Dennis, and you're staying with his family, and I just want to warn you. Uh, this guy is um, he's, he's, he's a merchant banker. He's incredibly successful in business, um, but God's done a work in his heart, and what he used to be a harsh man, he's now just been overwhelmed with God's love, and he shares that with everybody he meets. And the way that he expresses that is by hugging. And when he meets you, he will not shake your hand. He will grab you, and he will hug you. And I'm warning you because it, the first time it happens, you feel really awkward but don't fight it. 
So um, we go into a bookstore, and he goes, oh, Dennis is here. Like, he thought he was going to take me to his home where I could have a private hug. But we're in this, <laughs> we're in this bookstore, and he goes, Dennis, come and meet your Kiwi friend, Phil, who's going to stay with you. And what did he do? As I reach out my hand to shake his hand, just a natural. He bypasses that, does the sidestep, and just embraces me. And you know what? To start with, it was really awkward. And then I started to feel the love. Because the walls came down. And it's only when the walls come down that I can receive love. That's how I imagine this story finishing. See, what God's designed for us and what Jesus is portraying to us is what I call covenant connection. It's, it's love that is the fruit of the pain that the Father desires for us to experience in this world right here, right now. It's what he experiences as the Trinity. It's what we read about in the Scriptures, but it's what I want us to fight for as a family. Covenant connection. A covenant connection is, is a family that's bound together with unrestricted, relentless love that always seeks to serve the other person's higher good. And it's not what the world teaches us. And that's why maybe we've got these filters that are affecting how we experience love in this family. The, the world has this thing now um, that I describe as, it's, it's called relationship by agreement. And we come together and we agree on something so we can have a relationship, a friendship or a bond. But because that relationship is forged in agreement, the moment we have a disagreement, the bond is broken. We can no longer have a relationship. Because the basis of our bond is broken. It's how the world views marriage. It's how the world views friendship. It's how the world even views family. It's how some people view church. It's not godly. It's not biblical. And it's not for disciples of Jesus Christ. Covenant connection, I describe as, as, as coming together because of a willingness to agree with God, what God has ordained. And locking together in others, what is a phrase that I learned years ago, other-centered love. Love that seeks the higher good of the other person. Love that says, because of this covenant, I will die to see you succeed in your God-given calling. I will give my life to this, and it's unshakable, and it's unbreakable. And in this bond, because it's based on covenant, there's room for disagreement. Because when we disagree about something, there's so much love there, we work it out. And it doesn't break the bond. This is covenant. It's God's picture of family. It's the way he's demonstrated himself to us. He makes a covenant with us based on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and says, even if we disagree, you can't break this bond. Because I died for you. That your highest good would be achieved. What does that mean for you? It means living like that. If I could get the band to come and join me on stage. We, um, we, we sort of talked about how we were going to land this, and, and in doing so, my objective is always to ask God, what's on your heart for the people who are here, and how might they see you? And, and, and what, he's, what he said, this is, I'm just letting you know what, what he said, and you can 
decide how you sit in that. But the way that we get to the place to love fiercely, unrestricted and relentlessly is to experience his love. We love because he first loved us. And so what I'm, what I'm inviting you into now is a, a place where you sing about God's love and then you choose how you respond to God's love. And we're going to make the front here an altar where you put down anything that he shows you that is not from him and we bring death to it here at the altar in order that you'd receive new life that he has for you. And it could be a range of things. It could be the filters you've got around family. It could have been a relationship issue you've got with someone else. It could be just repenting from wrong views and unbiblical actions. It doesn't matter. And the band are going to go, go hard because I asked them to. We're going to sing reckless love. You know, there's um, murmurings in some circles about the phrase reckless love. And some, some would say, oh, you can't call God's love reckless. Well, the guy, Corey, who wrote the song says, God's love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance that one of us might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. So as the band sing the song, we're going to have this place as an altar for you to come and stand, to sing to him and allow him to minister to you. What I feel God's asked me to do is to, um, not to counsel, not to speak words of prophecy, but just to impart love, to release love as a father, to, 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 to agree that God's love overcomes every circumstance that you're facing. And in this place, I'm expecting restoration in response to repentance. In this place, I'm expecting healing. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. In this place where you meet the extravagant love of God, His reality can become your reality. Why don't you stand? God, we ask that you give us the boldness to respond to your love this morning. We thank you that you loved us first and that that empowers us to step into your love. God, we ask that we would get this morning a revelation of your love again, afresh, that lifts us and empowers us, that restores us, that we would step into more of you. More of you in our lives, more of you in our family at home, more of you in this church family. God, that we would shine your love to other people. Holy Spirit, come. Bless us with the love of heaven.